Hello, and welcome to this edition of People in Transition. I'm your host, Bob Durst. I've been hiring, firing, and mentoring executives, frontline employees, interns, and job seekers in companies around the world through a host of transitions, some difficult, but most very good. I work with people in Hong Kong, India, Australia, and across the United States. What sets them apart? A lot, but there's more they have in common. And one of those commonalities is transition is a part of life. This experience has given me a bird's eye view on a variety of trends, economies, industry disruptors, and transitions that are big and small. It also brought me into contact with the thought leaders and decision makers you need to meet. The people who can make the difference that matters to you right now. Imagine knowing exactly what to do next and how to know it's time to make your big change. The inside track you're going to access during our future episodes is better than a crystal ball. It's the exact information you need to take that next step. Whether you're a new grad applying for your first professional job, someone looking to transition your work experience into a promotion, launching your own company, or maybe even starting to plan your retirement, you're in transition, and this series is for you. We all know transition can be scary, but it doesn't have to be. And it's even fun when you have VIP access to the future you want. Are you tired of the uncertainty of being passed up? We'll share with you the tools and skills that can take your dreams to the front of the line. So if change is on your horizon, or maybe just the thought of change, you won't want to miss this discussion. It could be the exact edge you need to turn transition into an amazing opportunity. Scott Singer, thank you so much for being a part of People in Transition. I'm really looking forward to today's recording. Thank you. Happy to be here. Scott, when you were younger, what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, interesting question. I, I didn't settle on things for a long time, and I was kind of a nightmare when I got to college. You know, I was undeclared for three years. But, you know, I, I started out wanting to be a writer, novelist, that type of thing. I realized while I was in college, I had to actually make a living. So I started taking some journalism classes, worked as a journalist for a little while, really discovered I didn't enjoy it which was kind of a surprise to me. But, you know, chasing after the news can be kind of a grind. Ended up going back to business school, ended up going into recruiting, did that for almost 20 years. Then I had, uh, when I was in my mid-40s, the question of what I want to be when I grow up. Moved over to eventually to the uh, resume writing, career coaching area. So, you know, I'm on career number three, I think, at this point. Really an interesting background. And you've obviously experienced a number of transitions yourself. So if we could, let's first talk about resumes. Scott, if, if you could make two suggestions to help people make their resumes better, what would those two suggestions be? Great question. I think the first thing is make sure that it looks decent. I'm not saying that you have to have something that's going to be hanging in the Louvre, but you want to make sure that it's well formatted and it's it's attractive and it's been spell checked and looks good. But I think the other thing and the more important thing is when you're building a resume, really focus on your achievements. A lot of people tend to focus on describing what they did for a living. What were their job duties? Sometimes actually just going so far as to copy and paste their job description. 
And it's much stronger and much more compelling and tells a an employer what you can do for them if you really detail out your achievements measurably is preferred. But sometimes they can be binary. In other words, I improved this process. I made things better. But really, it's all about making sure that you're demonstrating you left things in better shape than when you came. I've always heard, Scott, that numbers are a good idea on resumes. What's your thoughts on that? They can be. It, it really depends on what you're going after. When you're dealing in a corporate setting where your your work can affect, affect the profit and loss, maybe not directly, but indirectly, or if you're in sales, it does affect it directly. The more that you can use numbers to say that you increased revenues by X percent, that you decreased costs by Y percent, that you were able to build and develop a client base of X number of clients, those are certainly helpful. But you know, keep in mind, not everybody's job is like that. You've got people who, for example, are psychotherapists. Maybe they're a mental health worker. And in that case, it's more important to be able to detail the types of clients you've worked with, the unique types of cases you've had, and the process that you've been able to build. Scott, one page or five pages of a resume? What's your coaching? If you're a recent graduate of a master's or a bachelor's degree, one page is absolutely appropriate. And in fact, the Career Center is not going to take your resume unless it is one page. But if you've got a few years of experience under your belt, it's certainly appropriate to do two pages. I don't want to get into the whole topic of CVs, you know, like academics where they're a professor. Those can go on. My wife is a, uh, she's a business editor and she did some work with a university dean and worked on his CV and helped him. And it was 45 pages, which is kind of amazing if you think about it. But if you're looking for a professional job in a corporate setting, two pages is probably as long as you should go unless you have special dispensation. What's important about the key words that you have in your resume? Great question. As employers are trying to automate more and more of the process, what's happening is that they're using their applicant tracking systems to do the initial sort for resumes. So try to think of it this way. They're basically using a similar version of Google to go through, uh, you know, compare the job description against the resumes and, and give everyone a score. So if you are applying to a job and let's say that it's for a financial analyst, it's important to go through the job description, look at some of the terminology that they're using. What are some of the tasks? Maybe it's financial planning and analysis. Maybe it's strategic analysis, modeling. If you see these types of keywords in the job description, there's a good chance that it's going to score you higher if it's in your resume. So making sure that you touch on some of those keywords is essential in terms of ranking higher when a recruiter does review resumes. Scott, why do outplacement coaches say that you should go beyond relying solely with online applications? What does that mean and what does that mean that you should do? Well, the the outplacement coaches are right. And let me put this in terms of numbers. I think this can help. If you're applying to a job at a, let's, let's use a company like Amazon, for example. I had a friend who was a recruiter at Amazon. And she had indicated that for every job that they posted, now keep in mind, this was a few years ago, but she had indicated that for every job that they posted, they got approximately 10,000 resumes for each position, which means that 10,000 people have gone online, determined that it was a good idea to apply. Now, just doing the simple math, let's say that your resume is in the top 5% of all the different resumes that 
you go ahead and, uh, you know, you're ranked by the uh, system. Even 5% means that the recruiter will have had to have gone through 500 resumes to get to your resume, which based on the way that the process works is, is actually kind of unlikely. What happens is that they use the, the ATS to do the initial sort. They're going to go through the resumes until they've got a stack of five or 10 that they really like, and they're going to screen or share with the hiring manager, and they're going to stop. So just applying online may not necessarily be enough. What I typically advise clients on is use LinkedIn as a resource to really get noticed during your job search. And here's what I mean. You know, when you've got a premium subscription to LinkedIn, you've got better search capability. You've got a certain number of what's called in-mails where you can reach out to people you're not directly connected to. You can use LinkedIn to see if you can identify who might be the hiring manager at an organization. And you can send a note to them after you've applied saying, hey, I'd like to introduce myself. My name is Scott. I've applied online to this position. I have X years of experience doing ABC. Love to talk to you. Here's another copy of my resume. What you're doing is, number one, you're demonstrating that you've been able to follow their process by talking about applying online. But by going around and trying to reach the hiring manager who may be sitting anxiously waiting for HR to give them resumes, what you've done is you've stoked potentially their interest and presented yourself as the solution to their problem. From my days in recruiting, I've seen it happen many times where the hiring manager will walk over to the recruiter's desk, say, this person contacted me. Would you mind going ahead and screening them or bringing them in for an interview? So not just relying on applying online is a very important thing to consider. So that kind of follows along my experience is that people hire people that they know and they like. And so you're being able to establish an advocate for yourself in that company that you might be interested in is a real plus. Any tips, techniques to help you establish that advocate inside? Well, the beautiful thing about the way the world works these days is this isn't the same world as when you know, you and I are, are old enough to remember the days when if you wanted to make a connection, you had to go to an association meeting and, you know, have a rubber chicken dinner and, and network with hundreds of people and hope that maybe you can get in touch with them again in the future. It doesn't work that way anymore. Right now, it's much more transactional. Employers and companies are much more focused on filling jobs quickly. And people are much more mobile. I think these days, you'd probably know better than I would, but the statistic I saw most recently is that people are staying in jobs for two years, whereas it used to be four, five, seven years. You know, people are taking a much more transactional approach to it. Using LinkedIn to, to reach out to somebody who might be in a department that might be of interest to you at a company that might be of interest to you, it's a fantastic way to open a door. And keep in mind that everybody should be looking for talent all the time. And if you can exploit that to your advantage by reaching out to potentially the right person at the right time, it can absolutely be a huge benefit in terms of getting attention. You don't need to necessarily work massive chains of referrals anymore. That being said, if you do know somebody who knows somebody within a company, LinkedIn can show you that and that can be very beneficial as well. Scott, how do you coach your clients to prepare for the Zoom interview or the telephone interview, which is much different than going in in that in-person interview? What are some of the tips, techniques to get ready for those telephone or Zoom interviews? If you're going and doing a phone interview or a Zoom interview, it's important to keep it as professional as it would be as if you were doing an in-person interview. So that means First of all, find yourself a quiet space. 
it's not real beneficial if you're doing an interview and you've got babies crying and dogs barking. So that's not going to really help your candidacy. Secondly, if you are doing something, it could be a potential Zoom or FaceTime or Skype. Dress professionally. Men wear a shirt, tie, and, and a suit. Women wear a suit and maybe skirt. You want to make sure that you're reflecting as, as positively as possible and professionally. But the other thing is that you want to be also prepared. Make sure that this isn't just some sort of fly-by-night interview that you think you're just going to win. You want to have a good foundation of knowing who you are, because obviously the first question, you know this, what's the first question any employer asks? Tell me about yourself. So you're going to want to have your elevator pitch ready. You're going to want to be prepared for behavioral questions, i.e., tell me about a time when you had a situation like because employers are going to want to see that you can solve problems. The last thing is don't go into this without an idea of what you're looking for in terms of compensation, because I can guarantee you on the first phone interview, it's going to come up as a question. You took my one question I was going to ask you in terms of what do you do when they say, tell me about yourself. There's another favorite question that, uh, that I hear all the time. Tell me what your weaknesses are. How do you answer that? I think the strength weakness questions are some of the dumbest questions you can ask, but I think that there is a benefit to the weakness one, which is that it's an opportunity to show that you have an element of self-awareness. There's some good answers to this and there's some lousy answers. The, the lousy answer, I'm sure you've heard this one, is I work too hard. Well, the employer doesn't really care. They want to see that you're going to work hard, so that's not really a downside. The way that I've typically answered it in the past is... I've answered it and I've advised people to answer it. Find something that could be a weakness, could be a strength, but how you've worked around this. So my personal example has been, I am a very impatient person. If I'm working in the office and somebody says, I need something quickly, I'll get it done quickly. I'm very focused. I'm very task oriented. And usually my turnaround time is excellent. Where it tends to come into an issue is that not everybody in the world works at the same pace I do. I've managed people. Sometimes my expectations were a little bit more aggressive than what they were able to achieve when giving people direction. So when it came to working through this, what I did was I had gone ahead and said, I've spent a lot of time becoming aware of it, understanding that this can be a strength as well as a weakness, and I've worked to temper that. And it's something that I've been able to focus on over the years, and it's quite successfully. Scott, we are way too much alike. I've used that exact same weakness for myself. So I understand completely what, what you're talking about. I've seen other ones too. I think another great one that I've seen people bring up is that I'm a perfectionist. And for me, it's been a challenge in terms of knowing when to let go of something, when is good enough, because as a perfectionist, I can keep iterating on something. So again, if you can demonstrate that you've been able to become aware of this, understand that you're able to let things go at a certain point, then you can make that work to your advantage. Scott, do you think that you should post on your LinkedIn or other social media that you are in transition and looking? Is there any benefit to that or is it sharing too much without your being able to control the narrative around it? So that's a great question. I personally think that if the world knows that you're in transition, that it's not a secret. You know, look, I mean, if you're currently gainfully employed with a company and they don't know that you're looking for another job, you're not really in transition. You're looking for another job. And I think publicizing that could do a lot of damage to your current job. But if you've been told that, you know, look, your job has gone away or is going away, I see no downside. 
the thing is, as I mentioned earlier, the job search has become much more transactional. And if you are clearly articulating on LinkedIn, whether it's the, the, the little frame that goes around your photo or in your summary seeking new career opportunities, I think what it does is it accelerates the process for recruiters that are using the system or maybe people that you know that they'll more quickly stop on you because they know that you're going to be open and receptive. So, no, I don't, I don't see any real downside to that. So, Scott, you've touched on LinkedIn a, a couple of times. How should I use LinkedIn or other social media tools to help me during my transition? Yeah, LinkedIn is the number one tool, aside from, of course, having a, a resume that's complete and, and current and thorough. The beautiful part about LinkedIn is it's if you've got the premium subscription, which, by the way, if you are job searching, I strongly advise investing in because of the different benefits that it offers. But I think that with LinkedIn, the, the power that you have in terms of reaching out to potential hiring managers, reaching out to contacts that you may have lost connection with over the years, reaching out to anybody, as well as advertising essentially on your billboard that you're looking for an opportunity. It's such a flexible system. Plus, the other thing is premium members get LinkedIn Learning, which is some free training that comes along with the premium membership. It's online digital self-guided training, but it's wonderful topics. And by the way, let's say that you see a job opportunity and they need Salesforce. You haven't had Salesforce in your career, but guess what? Here's that free training. You can take that training and then add it onto your resume as additional training that you've taken. And then now you've added some additional keywords. So LinkedIn is a phenomenal tool. I strongly recommend it. And by the way, I have no stake in it other than the fact that I'm a paid subscriber myself. So you're an advocate for taking time, even if you're in transition, taking the time to learn new skills while you're in transition. It's the best possible use of your time other than looking for another job. I think that you would probably attest to this as well. We all sometimes get a little stale in our jobs. You've been doing the same position for the same several years. You you have certain responsibilities that you've been doing day by day. You don't always know how the rest of the world works. So absolutely, working on your technical skills, such as the software that you can use, if you're a programmer learning new programming languages, if you are looking to expand your project management skills, it's always a great time to do that. The other thing that it does is if you can demonstrate that you've been doing this recently, it shows to a potential employer that you've been using that time effectively and that you will probably use their time effectively should they hire you. Scott, what's the one mistake you've seen people make in their job search and how would you overcome that mistake that they've made? I don't see any single mistake that people make, which by the way, is not surprising because you know I think as a society, I don't think we really give people enough of a strong foundation in terms of job hunting as a skill. But I think that the piece that I've seen most often is the lack of extra initiative in terms of what they can do when they're searching for the job. I'll go back to the example that you had brought up at the beginning, which is just posting for a job and then hoping something happens. If you're doing that, everybody else is doing that. It's all about showing the extra effort, making those connections, working your network, seeing what else is out there and being creative into the job search. That's what's going to accelerate things for you. How do you manage your time, you know, when you're in the transition? Because time is a black hole. You can you can get on Facebook or LinkedIn or whatever and crawl down that hole and all of a sudden it's five hours and you're no further along in your search. How do you manage your time effectively? It's very hard. But I think the important thing is that if you're in transition, you need to put some structure around your schedule. 
Otherwise, it's going to be real easy to slip away and play Xbox games all day or going out to eat or whatever. What I've typically advised people to do is schedule a block of time during your day, not necessarily the whole day, but maybe three to four hours that you are spending your time applying to jobs, reaching out to connections, responding to employer inquiries, doing all of those different activities. And then the rest of the time that you have during the day, that's a wonderful time to go out and do catch-up lunches with people you haven't spoken to in a while, people that you've worked with in the past, that even if it's just to get your name front of mind, but going out to lunch with them, having a conversation with them, talking to them about what's up, I think that's probably the best way that you can use your time. Scott, we've talked about being in person or being online, Zoom, telephone. How is networking the same or different if you're doing that activity in person versus on Zoom and so forth? What are the things that you should keep in mind as you're looking at networking in either one of those modes? Wow. Yeah. If you're networking in person, it's pretty much straightforward, right? Here you are, you're in a room, you're going to be talking to people. You're going to, you know, it, it's always a good idea to circulate in terms of the the crowd and, and talking to people. I know I'm kind of a slight introvert myself. I don't love that part of it. So when I go to these events, I have to work at it, go and talk to folks. When you're on a Zoom networking event, and those are becoming much more prominent, what I've seen is that they tend to be much more structured. And you'll see, like, for example, it might be a speed dating kind of thing where they have everybody in a room like a micro Zoom room for a few minutes, and then they break them out into other sessions. Dress professionally, make sure you have a clean background behind you, and be structured within the time. If they tell you you have 60 seconds to introduce yourself and to talk about yourself, have a very succinct and sharp elevator pitch, which, by the way, is going to help you in person as well. But also keep in mind, and this is something that a lot of people forget when it comes to networking, it's not all about you. It's also about the other person you're talking to. So always try to keep in mind, what's the value that you can add to that other person? Maybe they don't have a job for you right now, but they do have a job for somebody that you know. Helping them and referring somebody that you know, even if you do need the job at this moment, can be a wonderful way to build your reputation, build some credibility, and build some equity in the bank for when you need something. Scott, how do you use those professional organizations to your advantage, Rotary, Chamber of Commerce, maybe your industry has a society that you could be a member of. How do you use those organizations to your advantage? Rotary and Chamber are probably not going to be the best bet for a job seeker. And you're talking to somebody who does this professionally belongs to a Chamber of Commerce. I think that the better bet is going to be the societies like, for example, the Project Management Institute, ASCM, American for Supply Chain Management, going to these organizations. A lot of them have resources such as job boards. They'll have regular networking events. They'll have regular training. And typically the training that they're going to offer are going to be on topics that are of interest to your field. They don't pick these topics willy-nilly. These are the things that are going to keep people coming back and help them get employed. So if you're a project manager and your skills are a little bit weak on Agile, for example, and you see they're doing an Agile course, by all means, you should be partaking in that and then getting to know other people who are in this course because they may have needs for uh, your skill set as well. Scott, how do you coach your clients? What are the two or three things that you suggest that they look at to help deal with the stress of being unemployed? And as you said, our skill set is not looking for a job. And so when you are doing that, it's oftentimes very stressful. What do you suggest to them? 
Yeah, I think that first of all, it's important to get yourself into a routine. I think if you can get into a routine where at least you're being productive, you're sending emails, you're making connections, I think that's very important. But I think the other piece to this is also to make sure that you fall into self-care. And what I mean by that is don't lose your routine of working out if that's something that you do, reading, other things that focus on helping you center yourself, you know, going to speak to a therapist. There's no shame in that. That's a wonderful thing. And sometimes they can come up with some great ways for you to help view your situation, especially if you left in a very difficult or awkward transition situation. And I think the last thing is remember that this is not personal. Try to really remember that no matter what's happening during the job search, during all these interviews, rejection is going to be a part of this. And that's going to affect your ego. There's no question about it. We're all human. So as long as you can internalize that it's in practice, remembering that it's not personal, that's going to be very helpful as well. I tell my clients when they're in transition, that's the time to sleep better, eat better, drink less, work out more. And that all means being kind to yourself. Scott, have you heard about a job search action plan and kind of what is that? How should a person who's looking for a job use one of those? Well, the job search action plan is more of just a general approach, and it's more of making yourself accountable. Sometimes if you write things down and you keep them documented and you refer to them day by day, it's going to keep you more accountable on the job search. So the action plan should include flying on certain job boards, following up with certain number of employers, reaching out to your network of people that you had worked with in the past or other network, reaching out to other people that maybe you don't know that might have something in common, looking for informational interviews. But it's really about making sure that you're documenting and keeping yourself accountable so you're keeping yourself on a schedule and keeping the train moving forward. You talk about personal accountability. Should you enlist someone else to be your accountability partner? If that's what motivates you, absolutely. Many of us have spouses or significant others that can help us with that. I think that it's also important that if you do that, you can't take it personally if the person is trying to keep you accountable. I don't know about you, but I sometimes don't always take feedback in the best way. And I've had situations where I've asked my wife to keep me accountable and she's told me, hey, you haven't done this yet. And I've gotten upset about it. Well, part of my job is to make sure that I don't get upset with her about that. But if you're going to get someone involved to help keep you accountable, you better make sure that you return the favor and do it in a way that's going to be responsible. Scott, ageism and many other isms are alive and well in the recruiting world. How do you deal with that in your job search? Ageism sucks. It's very real, but it's also kind of nebulous. You know, it's one of those things I've heard some people say, oh, it's not real. It doesn't really exist. Well, but it does. You know, ageism can come just in the simple fact that employers want to pay somebody less to do the job rather than somebody who's gotten 2% raises every year for the past several years. And you could find yourself out. So I think there's a couple of things that I advise people on when it comes to dealing with ageism. First of all, make sure your presentation is modern. And that means going to get a modern haircut. Yeah, I know you've loved that haircut that you've had since 1988, but maybe it's not in style anymore. You know, also go to Macy's, get yourself what's a current suit. You know, is it two buttons or three buttons? What's the fabric that people are using? What's the cut? Make sure that you're dealing with things that are certain current. But I think there's two other pieces as well. Number one, you want to make sure that you're demonstrating a great deal of energy. One of the preconceived notions that people have about older workers is they can't keep up. They tend to operate slower. 
which isn't necessarily true. And if you're demonstrating that you're energetic and that you're engaged and you're smiling and you're personable, it's going to be able to dismiss that doubt. And I think the other thing is that people are concerned that you don't have the current skills that are required. And again, this is where the always be training so part comes in. So number two, do that training. See what employers are looking for. Get your current skill. If you're a programmer and you, you know, you grew up on COBOL, you know, there's a very small audience for that. Maybe it's time to start looking at Visual Basic, C++, Java, these other languages that employers are using more currently. Scott, any other books or other resources that you would recommend to someone who's going through their own personal transition? This is kind of a non-traditional recommendation, but the book that I would recommend is Getting to Yes, and it's by the authors Uri and Fry. And it's not a book about job hunting. It's a book about negotiation. The reason that I recommend that is what it does is it really helps people understand how to really deal with the person who's across the table from you better, trying to understand what they're looking for and what they need and how you can get what you want. So that can help in terms of looking at the job, defining what the job is, understanding how you can sell and present yourself. But also, of course, when it comes to the salary negotiation, understanding how to deal with the negotiation in a way that's going to be a win-win as opposed to leaving poor feelings. That makes me think, when do you bring up the dollar amount for the position that you're interviewing for? I'm going to give you a multi-layered answer to that. For the case, most of us, you don't bring it up. You wait for the employer to bring it up. And if they bring it up, you try to deflect and focus more on the job opportunity and the opportunity for growth rather than the focus on the salary. Now, of course, no employer is going to settle for that. So if they ask you what you're looking for, where you've been, give them a very broad range of total compensation of where you, what are the opportunities that you're looking at. Where I say it's kind of a multi-layered is if you're a computer programmer or a technologist, sometimes they tend to go right around that. A lot of the computer programmers and engineers aren't necessarily known for the interpersonal side of things. They're more known for the technical. So I've seen people who are computer programmers get a call. Hey, we've got this opportunity. And the first question that they ask is, what does the job pay? I wouldn't recommend that to my clients. I think it's a terrible way to start it. But if it works for you and you know your skills are in demand, I guess you can get away with that. Scott, if our listeners remember only three things as they go through their own transition. What are those three things that you want them to remember to be successful in their job search? Number one, I had addressed this earlier. Remember, this isn't personal. The job search process is, is a rejection-laden process. Remember, it's not personal. Keep it segmented and put that personal side into a, into a little box in your mind and lock that up, which, by the way, I know is much, much harder to do than said. Number two is really explore many different avenues when you're applying for the jobs. Don't just post and pray. Reach out to people. Work your network. Reach out to people that may be potential hiring managers. Be creative. Go to job fairs. Keep things moving along. Number three, I would advise people to keep it professional. In this day and age where we've gotten much more casual, people have been used to working from home. You know, it's great to be able to go to work in pajamas and a t-shirt, but, you know, it's important that you still dress up, wear a suit, men and women alike, when you're applying to these opportunities and get out there and really be professional. Keep all of your interactions professional. Really keep the polish on. Don't get too casual in this job search because I can assure you, even if the person across the table from you does get casual, they will judge you if you are. Scott, you can tell your many, many years of recruiting 
your advice, your tips and techniques were just spot on. And I know that this is going to be helpful to our listeners. Thank you for your time today and your input. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. I really appreciate you having me on and, and thank you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We're working in unprecedented times as the world responds to the recent COVID-19 crisis. The fact is that even those who are not in transition understand it could be right around the corner next month or a year from now. The purpose of these episodes are to give listeners support and the critical tools to adjust with the winds wherever they come. I'll continue to introduce you to guests who have successfully, perhaps gracefully, or without too many battle scars, survived their own obstacle courses and can share useful information on how to steady your ship or your world in this uncertainty. If today's message was helpful to you, please share it on social media. If you have any questions or podcast ideas for future conversations, reach out to me on LinkedIn. I appreciate your time. You're investing in sharing these important conversations with me, my guests, and others who are going through life transition. Transitions between jobs, life stages, new entrepreneurial ventures, or whatever life brings. Change is constant. The more prepared you are for it, the better and easier the change will occur. Thank you again. This is your host, Bob Gerst. See you at our next episode of People in Transition.